Good morning, everyone. We are in the book of Hebrews, and we are in chapter 7. And if you remember back in chapter 4, I mentioned that for about six or seven chapters in the book of Hebrews, it's going to be all about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, his great job at doing the role of high priest. And I came to chapter 7, um, not with any reservations, because it's all God's word, and it's all beautiful, and it's all important, and it's all changing. But I looked at chapter 7, and I said, um, when I get to chapter 7, there is a lot of history stuff, which I enjoy history. Um, it may feel a little bit repetitive, based on the other chapters we've looked at in the book of Hebrews, um, but in the end, this chapter is amazingly glorious. So I thought to myself, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, when I get to chapter 7, how am I going to introduce it? And for most people, you're thinking, what do you mean, how are you going to introduce it? You just get up, you say hi, good morning, and you start in verse 1 of chapter 7, and you're done. Uh, anytime I put a sermon together... The introduction of the sermon is the very last thing that I ever think about. Because I want to make sure I know what I'm talking about. I want to know where I'm concluding. And then once I have that set, I go, okay, now how do I introduce it? And I have been mulling in my mind 10, 15 different ways of introducing chapter 7. Because it is vitally important, even though it might seem very familiar to us. Familiar doesn't mean wrong when it comes to Scripture. So we're just going to go on starting in verse 1. That's the best introduction I can do. And I think as we get through this, you're going to go, ah, Tim, you're right. Let's just start in verse 1. Enough talking. We're going to go through all 28 verses today. Oh, a couple gasps. That's okay. I'm up for that challenge. The first 10 verses kind of have one little summary regarding the greatness of Melchizedek. Now, if you remember back to chapter 4 and Genesis 14, and we're not going to go back into the history of it, we know who Melchizedek is. He's this mysterious character who shows up on the scene when Abraham gains victory over the northern and southern kings that captured his nephew Lot. He goes to see Melchizedek, and Abraham submits to Melchizedek as the high priest, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, and he acknowledges through tithe and offering that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Huge, huge piece of information. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham is considered the father of the faith, not just for Jews, but for believers. He exemplified and showed us and demonstrated to us what faith is. Believing God even when you don't see the whole thing and saying, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. We look at him as the father of the faith, a great man of faith that started with all the promises, never saw the promises fulfilled, but believed God. And it was a credit to him, accounted to him as righteous. He is a man of faith. He believed in the coming Messiah. He had trust and confidence in God. And he left all of his worldly possessions to follow God. And God blessed him, even at an old age, showing him that promises can come true when God makes the promise. Yet in all of history, Abraham only submitted spiritually to one person, Melchizedek. 
And Melchizedek is indeed a strange character because we don't know anything about his lineage. We don't know what tribe he's from. Obviously, there were no tribes at the time. We don't know if he was Jewish or an Israelite or even related to Abraham. He just shows up on the scene in Genesis 14 as a great man of faith, greater than Abraham. He was a priest to God, a king to God. He was indeed a standard of excellence when it comes to his relationship with God. It was beautiful. And the first 10 verses of chapter 7 talk about this character Melchizedek and his beauty and his importance and his superiority to Abraham because that is incredibly important for us to get out of chapter 7. That Abraham, as great as he was as a man of faith, was not nearly the man of faith that Melchizedek was. And God acknowledges that fact. Verse uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, and his name means the king of righteousness, who is the king of Salem, priest to the Most High God, all before the priesthood ever started, he was a priest. Even before Aaron. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He was first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Look at how the writer of Hebrews describes Melchizedek. He is an amazing character because in Jewish tradition, your father, your mother, your genealogy is your ticket to success. If you don't know that, you're considered at times outside of the faith. And yet Melchizedek, we have no record, record, no record of him being born, or dying. No family. No beginning, no end. And immediately, even before we get to the end of that verse 3, you're starting to put together, it sounds a lot like how Jesus was born. No beginning, no end. Yet he was born. Yet we know Melchizedek was born. We know he had a father and a mother. But that is insignificant to the story that God is telling through the Messiah. Your heritage and your lineage, even though in Israel as a nation... They took incredible pride of being of the priesthood of Aaron, the tribe of the Levites, the tribe of Judah. And everyone was boastful and proud about where they came from. Beautiful thing is we don't have to worry about that here in America. We certainly don't have to worry about that if we grew up on the east side, south side, west side, or north side of Pueblo. That doesn't matter because those are never divisions among us, where we're from where we went to school, who our parents are, our lineage, our heritage. That would never divide us because we are a common people unto God, a common people, a melting pot of America. Now, we also put a lot of pride, don't we, in where we've come from, where we were born, where we went to school, what our heritage and lineage is. In fact, we are so proud of it, sometimes we go to war over those differences. But not in the case of Melchizedek. He was without father, without mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See, according to the scripture, when did Melchizedek die? 
trivia question. He doesn't in Scripture. Now, we know he died because he's human and only two people have extended themselves past death, Enoch and Elijah. So, Melchizedek is one of those strange characters who has no record of his death. And so the author says this is a lot like Jesus. No record of his beginning, no record of his ending. He is forever a priest. And verse 4 through 10 start to connect this to the priesthood of Aaron. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, elevating Abraham, gave a tenth of the spoils. He tithed to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was greater than himself. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still of the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. This is all Scripture's way of making sure we understand how important Melchizedek is outside of Jewish tradition. That Melchizedek was greater than Jewish tradition and genealogy. He was greater than even Levi, who started the priesthood, and Aaron. He is greater than all the tribes combined. He is greater than even Abraham. Everything else that came from Abraham was later on in the later on in their future happened way beyond hundreds of years after this episode of Melchizedek and Abraham. And it all points back to even before all of these things were put into place on how to sacrifice, who could be a priest, who could be the high priest, who got paid tithes, who paid the tithes, it all way before then. Melchizedek was a front runner and this is what Jesus is going to look like. His beginning and end is going to be somewhat mysterious. We can't comprehend it. We can't put our fingers around it and say, I totally understand how we can be eternal and how we can be born, how we can be limited in space and time, but unlimited in space and time. I don't understand how he could raise himself from the dead. I do not understand how he could perform these miracles without any, any dependence on anyone else but himself. Mysterious how he received worship. How mysterious that he operated way outside the confines that Israel had instructed themselves to follow regarding who can do what in religious circumstances. Melchizedek supersedes all of that. And the author is going to make the case that Jesus is far superior even to Melchizedek. How great of a high priest he is. How satisfied we are in him 
as our high priest. How he breaks the mold, he breaks the status quo, he breaks the rules of engagement. He is the last and only great high priest we will ever need. There's no need for another. Once those veils tore down, split in half in that great temple that Solomon built and was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity, after that was rebuilt, that great temple of destroys it. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that, that's the priesthood of Aaron, that's all the sacrifices, all the grain offerings, everything that happened at the tabernacle, everything that happened at the temple, all the religious holy days, everything that that en- encompassed, all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all the priests, all the high priests. Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Rhetorical question. If the Levitical priesthood, if all of the religious worship and actions and activities of Israel were sufficient and perfect and making us right with God, we would never have needed Jesus If they were able to accomplish the forgiveness of sins and making us righteous, we would never need Jesus. So automatically, our defenses are getting a little raised here going, well, we need Jesus. Well, why do we need Jesus? What Jesus would accomplish. They were a small magnitude of describing what Jesus would do, but they didn't accomplish it. They just covered it for the moment. It was not good enough. Oh, and they did a lot. They had a dress and fancy clothes that they could only wear once a year. They had to wear bells on their, the, the bottoms of their, their robes. They had, I mean, oh my goodness, the number of rules they had to follow just in order to bring a sacrifice, your sacrifice before the temple, in order to slay that animal and burn it was extreme. Extreme. I would have done so poorly as a priest in those days because they had rules and regulations that you had to follow and I am the opposite of following directions. The opposite. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter if it's written directions or pictured directions. I don't do directions. I'm that guy who when they open up the box and it needs to be put together, I do one of two things. I throw the directions away or I hand it off to my wife and say, please, put it together. Ikea, I don't understand it. Help. It doesn't matter what it is. Never, never, please, never, 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 never ask me to help you put something together or even help you take it apart if you want to one day put it back together. I will not be able to accomplish that. So the rules that have been put upon the people by God, God gave them these rules. God gave them these laws. God gave them these steps. But God gave them to them knowing that they were not going to be good enough. They were not going to be perfect. And he goes on to explain why why he knows they weren't perfect, why he knows that they were weak. He says in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. 
For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. All of the tribes of Israel, 12 of them, and then one got split into two because of Joseph. Uh, So there were like 12 tribes technically, but there were like 13 groups of people. Every one of those groups of people, God promised a very particular place in the nation of Israel as their home base. This is the home of Ephraim. This is the home of Manasseh. This is the home of Judah. This is the home of, and it went through all the different tribes except for one. One tribe did not get any property. One tribe got no city to call their own. One tribe got no hill, no valley, no village, no river, no nothing. One tribe was in a way not given the promise of land. And that was the tribe of Levi, of whom Aaron came from. And Aaron was the first high priest God gave Aaron, Moses' brother, the task and the rule of making the priesthood functional. Implement these rules on how to do sacrifices. Implement these rules on how to clean yourself. Implement these rules on worship. Implement these rules on how to sing. Implement these rules when to sing. Implement these rules of holidays and festivals and traditions. Implement them. God gave that tribe specifically a different role than the rest of the other tribes. The rest of the other tribes were to take that land of the promised land and make it their own and make it fruitful, make it abundant, send soldiers out to fight and defend and protect. They were given the task of running the land. But the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons and descendants, they alone were given the task of being the religious leaders of the day. No one could change that. It was written in law that God gave to the people. Only this type of person can be a priest. And I know we would look at that as 21st century Americans and say, oh, yeah, that Old Testament stuff, they they didn't really understand culture because we believe today that anyone, regardless of race or gender, regardless of size or, 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 or anything, anyone can be anything. In fact, we've gone a little wacko on some of those ideas. But, but we have this innate belief that, hey, if you want to be a race car driver, you can be a race car driver. If you want to be a banker, be a banker. If you want to be a pastor, be a pastor. And we, we take away all those limits that Scripture applied to the Old Testament. And we say, oh, that was an old way of doing it. Very old-fashioned, very not in tune with culture, not in tune with diversity, not, you know, I mean, what do we do with the poor person who was of the tribe of Judah and they were really good at reading God's word and explaining it and wanted to be a priest. All of Israel would say, no, you can't. Because God has specifically said only those of the tribe of Levi can be priests. Doesn't matter how qualified you think you are, doesn't matter how skilled you are, doesn't matter if you would have been the greatest high priest ever. If you weren't of that tribe, it was not allowed. And in our sense of inclusion and fairness, we look at that and say, that is so wrong. you got to be inclusive. you got to tell everyone that they can be anything they want to be. 
Don't restrict it. You're going to stifle their imagination. You're going to stifle that passion that God gave in their heart. No. God has called each and every one of us to something very specific that other people cannot do. He's asked you to be you, and no one can do that besides yourself. And when it came to Old Testament worship, only the tribe of Levi could do it. No matter how much we may claim it's unfair or old-fashioned or archaic old Arabic history, the truth remains, this is how God set it up specifically. He continues to build this case in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. Wow, that is someone you want in charge, someone who has an indestructible life, meaning that their life cannot, one, be destroyed, but it cannot be changed. I want that person to be my high priest, someone who can last forever, someone who doesn't have to get changed out every time they die, relearn it, redo it. I want someone who just consistently does the job of high priest on my behalf. He says it. It's a person by the power of an indestructible life. And then he quotes Psalm 110. For it is witnessed of him, this person who has an indestructible life, that's going to take over the priesthood, that is not of the lineage of Levi, but of the tribe of Judah, who had no business being a priest, could not be a priest if he was of the tribe of Judah. It says of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You know what those verses are telling us? This might be hard. The Old Testament, those 39 books, that we read and study, and that this, this book of Hebrews is based on, is telling us something radically vital for the believer to understand. The law, the Ten Commandments, and everything else contained in the Old Testament cannot do what Jesus Christ himself has done. It cannot do. It is weak. It is insufficient. And as scripture says, it is useless. Tim, I don't think that means what you think it means. Did you just say the Ten Commandments are useless? Yes and no. Yes, I just said it. You heard it. But no, I didn't make it up. Scripture did. Look what it says. Listen carefully. Verse 15, this become, or verse, sorry, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. What did the law produce? I'll tell you what the law produced. 
It's what every law produces. What does every law produce? I'm not going to do that. You can't tell me I can't step on that grass. You can't tell me 35 is normal. You can't tell me white outline stop signs mean stop for everybody. You can't tell me I can't do that. Who are you to tell me I can't? Every law produces in us a fist and an attitude of resistance. Somewhere down the line, we have all felt it. We all see it. We all experience it, maybe to greater or lesser extents. Maybe, oh, maybe no one else gets frustrated when the grocery store line says, five items, and the person in front of me considers everything in their cart just five items. Well, maybe those 10 packets of meat, you can consider, okay, that's meat, but it's still 10 packets. Do you know how much that made-up law irritates me? So, if you see me at the grocery store and you're in front of me and you go to one of the quick checkout lines of less than five items, please, 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 just have five items in your cart because that infuriates me. Why? There's no real rational reason. There isn't a real reason at all. It's just that I see a law and I want to follow the law. I know that's a surprise. And you're not following the law and somehow now you're inconveniencing me an extra 15 seconds. But we all feel at some point with some law this resistance. Because I'll admit there's been more than one time that I have gone into that line because there's no one else in the store and I take seven items and I make it through. No one arrests me. No one's yelling at me. No one's behind me, you know, judging me, I think. But we have this resistance to rules and laws and it doesn't stop after we've, you know, Turn 21 and we're no longer a teenager. Or turn 20 and we're no longer a teenager. It happens even to adults. Right? Right. And scripture tells us that all those laws are useless to accomplish us drawing near to God. You see, that's the goal. That was the goal of the entire Old Testament to teach us, you know what? I can't draw near to God based on doing good things, right things, and obeying the law. I can't do it. I cannot draw near to God obeying the Old Testament. Because all it shows me is I can't. I can't draw near to God. And God says, you got it. Now you finally understand why we needed a Messiah, why we needed to Jesus. Because you can't draw near to God by yourself. You can't draw near to God through a high priest, through a priest, through a celebration, through a tradition, through a sacrifice. You can't draw near to God. You need Jesus to draw near to God. And all of that was to teach us we can't do it. And the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, and Solomon, and the greats of the faith knew that. And they were looking forward to something that cleansed their heart. And sacrificing a bull and goat 
can't do it. It just covers it. It just says, I need more because that animal's life is not worth my life. It's an animal. It has no soul. It's not made in the image of God. It's not an equal trade. How do we get to an equal trade? We need someone who is perfect. Someone who is indestructible. Someone whose life is worth more than mine. Someone who doesn't already have to deal with their own sin, but can go straight to God and say, I've dealt with their sin. You see, he continues in verse 20 through 28 to tell us how perfect Jesus fulfills that role. It says in verse 20, And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made without such an oath. That is the oath of Melchizedek. But this, was, uh, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The oath of God said there is going to be a priest that takes care of all other priests. There is going to be a way to draw near to God that takes care of all other ways that we can draw near to God. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Oh, it is a new covenant. It's made in his blood. It is fresh. It is real. It is vibrant. It accomplishes everything God wanted it to accomplish, and Jesus guarantees it by himself, saying, I, not a goat, not a bull, not grain offering, not celebrations, not traditions, not festivals, not holy days, none of that. I guarantee it. The one who is indestructible. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, listen to these words, Christian. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He saves to the uttermost. He saves completely. He saves in such a way we can draw near to him, and he saves in such a way that it never ends. He saves in such a way that it never ends. His salvation, as we saw in chapter 6, is eternal salvation. Not temporary salvation, not maybe salvation, not I hope it's salvation. It is full and absolute, complete salvation from sin in total. And he does that for you, holds it for you, communicates with the Father for you forever and ever and ever. It does not change. Because he doesn't change. He's indestructible. But the priests in the Old Testament and those who elevate themselves and usurp the role of Jesus, even today claiming to be a priest or a high priest, die. So their work is nowhere near as good as Jesus's because Jesus saves to the uttermost, not temporarily, doesn't have to take care of his own sin first. 
He saves completely. And listen to the closing three verses of chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Look at how Jesus is described. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, which means he doesn't partake in our sinful nature, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the other people, since he did it once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In Romans 8.1, Paul makes a concluding statement about our relationship with Jesus when he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When it says that Jesus saves to the uttermost, this is what it means, that there is no condemnation. Oh, Tim, but you don't understand how many times I've done this, and I feel really guilty about it, and it's bugging me, and it's, it's ruined relationships what I've done. My answer is, the reason why you're caught in that trap of guilt and shame is because you don't truly believe that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When he forgives, he forgives to the uttermost, doesn't he? He doesn't forgive temporarily. He doesn't forgive in chunks. He forgives in total. When God separates us from our sin, how far does Scripture describe it to be? As far as the east is from the west. There's no connection. When he forgives, we are forgiven. He saves to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost. He has saved you. He gives to the uttermost. He does not hold back his forgiveness. How can he handle all of that guilt, that shame, that sin. How can he handle all that sin that we lay on him? <laughs> He's indestructible. Sin has already been proven. It can't beat him. Death itself can't beat him. He destroyed it. He saves to the uttermost. And lastly, in Psalm 103, verse 10, the psalmist writes, he doesn't deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our wrongdoing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, wow, what a whirlwind of truth this morning. A lot to take in. But Lord, I hope that our hearts and our minds focus upon one thing, that you are indeed merciful to us, you are indeed special to us, and you indeed have saved us to the uttermost. And because of that, Father, your name is above every other name. And all of God's people said, amen.
Guys, let's read this verse together as we get ready to sing our last song. This is Philippians 2.9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All right, so let's stand and sing to our great high priest, our holy king forever, Jesus Christ.
Amen. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. May this Jesus Christ, who saves you to the uttermost, may he be with you this week. May he watch over you and guide you and guard you and draw you near to the Father in a way that you just thought was impossible. He is indestructible. Lay your sin at his feet. Confess your guilt, your shame right before him. He is faithful and just to forgive you of all sin and make you right before his eyes. Until next week, may God bless you. Remember, after the service, the elders and the staff leadership team are going to meet you back at the Welcome Center. If you'd like to meet us and you haven't had a chance to talk to us in a long time, that would be a great place to see us. God bless everyone.